Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello from England. This is Bob, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This episode and the whole show are entirely listener-supported, and without your support, the creators wouldn't be able to make this fantastic show. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. So, on behalf of Diane and Denise, I can say thanks for listening, and if you just started listening, welcome. On a misty night, two lovely ladies came up with an idea to research and tell the world about history and the things that go bump in the night. This is History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 226th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. We have another legend theme for this episode. We're going to be talking about the legend of Lilith. And we've had several of our listeners request this one. We're going to be joined by our listener, Jamie Burcham, in just a moment to talk a little bit more about Lilith. Before we do that, we want to welcome to the spooktacular crew. John with no H. Hello, John with no H. Dion with two N's. Hey, Dion with two N's. Bradley. Hi, Bradley. Mary. Hey, Mary. Amber. Hi, Amber. Don, as in the girl. D-A-W-N. <laughs> Hello, Don, as in the girl, or as in the rising of the sun. Paula. Hi, Paula. Denise. Hey, Denise. Good name. Neil with two L's. Hey, Neil with two L's. Mindy. Hi, Mindy. Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Darren. Hey, Darren. And Alex. Hi, Alex. And now, this moment, Noddity. There was a time long ago when Canterbury was a great center of pilgrimage. With the arrival of so many people came lots of money. And sometimes lots of money brings sin. For Canterbury, it became quite rich and very sinful. It was so bad there that the devil himself felt justified in carrying the village off to hell. But he was unable to do that for one reason. Prayers were being offered up at the shrine of Thomas a Becket. One night, the priests were derelict in the duties and forgot to pray. The devil took his chance and swooped up a great number of homes and dropped them into the sea on the north coast of Kent. He grabbed a second armful and dumped them in the same place. Now the cathedral had these bells, and in it one was called Great Harry. St. Thomas himself ran to the sacristan and told him in a vision to ring that bell. The man obeyed, and the sound startled the devil, causing him to drop his third armful of homes. These landed on the coast. This became the town of Whistable, and they say you can still see the other homes that were dropped under the water. There are many stories of sunken cities in history, but the devil being the actual cause is strange. 
And while this might be legend, people have inhabited the Whitstable area since Paleolithic times. So the fact that they even made up this legend about their origins certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of October, on the 2nd, in 1959, the television show The Twilight Zone premiered. The show was an anthology series featuring a different story each week with a host of famous actors starring as various characters. The series was created by Rod Serling, who was a screenwriter, playwright, and producer, and has become most well-known for his narration of The Twilight Zone. Serling had developed a pilot for what would become The Twilight Zone and submitted it to CBS. It was called The Time Element and featured a man who had vivid nightmares of the Pearl Harbor attack. A twist at the end reveals that the man had died at Pearl Harbor, and a psychiatrist that he was talking to is actually having the dreams about him. CBS didn't think the premise would do well, so they handed it over to Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball for their Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Television watchers went nuts and gave CBS so much positive response that they agreed to let Serling go ahead with the pilot for The Twilight Zone. The series aired for five seasons with 156 episodes, most written by Serling. There have been attempts to revive the series, but none has been successful. The series continues to run in syndication. Lilith is an enigma. Did she ever actually exist? And if she was just a mythological character, which description of her is accurate? Was she just the shunned first wife of Adam? Was she a demon hell-bent on killing babies? Was she a demon in the form of a succubus? Was she a vampire? Or is she simply a model of feminist power worthy of worship and goddess religious practices? On this episode, we are joined by listener Jamie Burcham to explore the different theories on Lilith and to get to the heart of the legend of Lilith. Well, we are joined by our listener, Jamie Burcham, and she is somebody who knows a little something about Lilith, and she's here to share her knowledge with us. How are you, Jamie? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you guys for having me on. One of the things we like to ask people is, you're listening to a show about the paranormal, so what got you interested in the paranormal to begin with? Oh, I love the way that history can kind of influence some of the legends that you guys talk about and some of the paranormal activities that can happen. So I actually was searching for sort of historical podcasts when I came across yours. And so I think it's history really that I identify the most with these fantastic stories and just a hint of something in there uh, is really something that I've always, always been interested in. Cool. So have you had any experiences yourself? I've had a couple that, you know, I, I kind of look back and I'm like, ooh, Okay, I don't really know what was happening there. My go-to perspective is usually a little bit skeptical of things. If I can find some sort of explanation that kind of explains something that's happened, then I usually go with that versus immediately thinking it might be a ghost. There's definitely been two instances where I've had just kind of spooky experience that I can't quite explain away. Let's see. I think it was about five or six years ago now. I was living with 
a boyfriend at the time. And we were kind of in bed. We were sleeping. It was the middle of the night. And I feel something kind of poking me in the middle of my back. And, you know, I think it's him. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe he's woken up and needs to tell me something or, you know, that's kind of what I think it is. So I roll over to kind of fling my arm because I'm a little bit of an angry sleeper. And um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it hit nothing. And so I was like, what? And so I turn around and my back was to the edge of the bed and there was nothing there. And my significant other at the time was snoring. And so I know he was out cold. And so I was like, well, that's a little weird. And then I went down to the kitchen uh, to get a glass of water. And lo and behold, the gas had sprung a leak in the stove. And so I was able to kind of shut that off and avoid a rather catastrophic sort of explosion. And so I kind of in the back of my mind think, well, huh, maybe something was kind of poking me awake there looking out for me. <laughs> Interesting. It makes you wonder if it was a guardian angel or somebody that is a member of your family that has passed on that decided to come and pay a visit and say, Jamie, you better wake up and go check the stove. <laughs> that's a very cool yeah, story. Yeah, uh, it was one of those things that gas has always been something that kind of is a little bit scary for me. So... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, but I'm very, very happy that 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 happened. Um, but I remember thinking how weird it was because I'm a very light sleeper, and it was a definite sort of poke in the middle of my back. So yeah, it was nothing really to explain that, but I'm absolutely thankful because it helped avoid a rather uh, terrible situation. So, well, we're as you know, open-minded skeptics ourselves, And so it would be easy to say, well, maybe you just imagine that something poked you or I don't know, maybe there was a lump in the bed or something that, <laughs> but when you have the other thing that goes with it, whereas you get up and you find out that there's an issue that you needed to be told about, it really makes you feel like, no, that had to have been something waking you up. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's one of those things that if it were any other night and I had just rolled over and gone back to sleep, I probably wouldn't have thought anything of it. Like, oh, I just, you know, whatever it might have been. But yeah, I think that the fact that it, it was, I got up and got there in time that that kind of made me feel like, well, maybe there was a some, little something else happening. And the other key part that we learned there is that you're an angry sleeper. So nobody poked Jamie <laughs> when she's sleeping. <laughs> Yeah, so I am. I ooh, yeah. I uh, talked to my husband about that one. He uh, he he knows how how I can be <laughs> at night, I, and I don't mean to be. I feel like I'm a nice person, but uh, yeah, I hibernate like a bear. So. Well, I used to have a friend like that that I learned rather quickly after she almost took my head off. That this is horrible, but. If her mom said go down and wake her up, she's downstairs. I would actually get like a broom or something to poke her with. So because the one time I went up and I said, hey, and I just shook her and she came around with her arms swinging. And I mean, if I wouldn't have had good reflexes, I would have probably gotten my nose broken. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So Jamie, when it comes to Lilith, I have to say I grew up in a traditional Lutheran church. And so we didn't talk about this kind of stuff in my church. And so it wasn't until a few years ago I started looking at some of the fringe Christianity and stuff out there. And I started hearing about... Mm -hmm this woman called Lilith. And when people would talk about her, they would say she was Adam's first wife. And I was like, what are you talking about? There was only Adam and Eve. How could there be a first wife? And that's about what I knew about her. And occasionally I've heard other people throw in other things about that, you know, she's a consort to the devil or that she's some kind of demon. And so the first thing I'd like to ask you about her is what got you interested in her to begin with? 
I actually didn't have that much exposure to her either. And so I didn't really hear anything about Lilith other than sort of from what you would see on TV. And so I had always kind of assumed that she was sort of the mother of vampires. And I heard that narrative a lot associated with her, some sort of demonic type association. And it wasn't until I started teaching, actually, I teach a humanities course uh, that covers ancient through medieval time period. And they sort of mentioned her, I mean, they gave her maybe a sentence in the ancient Mesopotamian era. And it kind of piqued my interest. And I was like, well, I know that name. And so I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. I talked about her in, in sort of several segments because her mythology evolved through time. And it's really fascinating to see how that reflects perhaps what their culture and the surrounding civilization was thinking about and the things that they placed value on at the time. In many circles, Lilith is the oldest female spirit in the world. The most ancient culture to have written records is that of the Sumerians. The Sumerians emerged in southern Mesopotamia around 5,000 years ago. They were named for their area of habitation, Samar. Samar was divided into states and each had its own temple dedicated to a specific patron deity for that state. It is thought that Lilith's name has its origin in the Sumerian language. They called her Lilitu, which means wind spirit. This was not a good spirit. She was thought to be a demon. The first literary appearance of Lilith is in Tablet 12 of the Epic of Gilgamesh that dates back to 2100 BC. In the tale, Lilith is one of three creatures who haunt a great hulupu tree that could be found in a garden made for the gods. The other two creatures are a bird and a snake. The bird is at the top, Lilith is in the middle, and the snake is at the foot of the tree. The hero of the story, Gilgamesh, kills the snake, and frightens the other creatures who flee the garden. It is possible that the idea that Lilith was the serpent in the Garden of Eden and that she can fly like a bird with wings comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It seems like there's a lot of different cultures throughout the world that have adopted her figure into their different uh, traditions and their mythologies. So you not only have it in the Jewish tradition, but uh, the Egyptians and the Hittites, the Greeks, all of them seem to have her incorporated a little bit into their stuff. Absolutely. And I think that has to do with her her origin, really. From what we can trace back a few thousand years ago, she starts appearing in some ancient Mesopotamian writings. So the first sort of writings that we have, she appears as a, a sort of demonic figure that attacks infants and pregnant women. Um, And so we kind of are introduced to her in that way. And it's interesting to see the words and the translations that are used to describe her because she's usually associated with night or with wind at that point. It's interesting that she would go after pregnant women and babies, especially if she was Adam's first wife, because she might have been jealous that Eve became the mother of mankind. Well, and let's talk a little bit about that. Why... Why she is, quote unquote, the first wife, and then all of a sudden she's gone, and then here comes Eve. So what happened between Adam and Lilith? So in the Bible, they have uh, Genesis, the first chapter, verse 27, and I'm using the Orthodox translation here. And it says, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And so he's creating two figures here, a male figure and a female figure from the dust. And so Adam would be considered the male figure and Lilith the female figure. 
And scholars have pointed to the sort of discrepancy that then emerges in a later Genesis chapter 2.23, where it brings in the story of the creation of Eve from one of Adam's ribs. And so the Hebrews came up with this kind of myth to explain that discrepancy in the canon. Basically, she came in and was Adam's first wife, and she wanted equality, whereas Adam wanted more of a submissive wife. She wanted to have sexual relations in a more equal way, and I guess Adam wanted a more submissive wife. And so they kind of fought together about that. And so eventually she, according to the Hebrews, spoke the ineffable name of Yahweh and left the Garden of Eden. So she was kind of seen as this very independent figure um, and a very powerful woman. And so when she left the Garden of Eden, the insinuation is that she gained the ability to fly and that she is immortal. Uh, When God sent angels after her to kind of bring her back to the Garden of Eden, she wouldn't go. She refused to. And so apparently God cursed her so that her offspring would die tragically, which then brings in sort of the reasoning behind why Lilith attacks pregnant women and infants. Robert Graves and Raphael Patai wrote in the book, The Hebrew Myths, Adam complained to God, I have been deserted by my helpmate. God at once sent the angels Sanoi, Sansanoi, and Samangaloth to fetch Lilith back. They found her beside the Red Sea, a region abounding in lascivious demons, to whom she bore Lilium at the rate of more than 100 per day. Return to Adam without delay, the angel said, or we will drown you. Lilith asked, how can I return to Adam and live like an honest housewife after my stay beside the Red Sea? It will be death to refuse, they answered. How can I die, Lilith asked again, when God has ordered me to take charge of all newborn children, boys up to the eighth day of life, that of circumcision, girls up to the twentieth day. Nonetheless, if I ever see your three names or likenesses displayed in an amulet above a newborn child, I promise to spare it. To this they agreed, but God punished Lilith by making 100 of her demon children perish daily. So basically, the angels decided to not return Lilith to Adam because she would kill his offspring. Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. How did we go from having a male and female, both made from the same thing, which to me equals you are the same, which means equal, Mm -hmm. to now all of a sudden we have Eve coming from Adam's rib. And that we had those two in the very beginning, and then all of a sudden Adam is so alone that God wanted to make a companion for him. And 
when he makes the second companion, it's somebody that he makes from a part of Adam, which would indicate, I want to make it like you are submissive to him because you came from him rather than that mm-hmm. God just created her from the same kind of thing as Adam. And so you can see why when you have more of a patriarchal type of religious system coming in and why it would bump up against more of a pagan or Wicca or goddess type worship that would say, well, women should be equal to the man because look here, it makes you wonder if that's why all of a sudden Lilith has become a demon. Now, maybe she did because she was Mm -hmm. angry about all that, decide that, hey, I'm going to become a bad girl. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of interesting the way that, you know, the things that were a threat to a patriarchal society, the independence, the partnership, the intelligence, the power, things that she's kind of revered for today and what really interests people in her today was such a threat back then um, that it does make me think that perhaps they did tie in some of this scary, more demon association with Lilith. She's sometimes known in some texts as the mother of monsters. And and so it's just, it's interesting to see how some of these texts they're not considered part of the biblical canon, like the official Bible, but yet they're almost as old as it. As Jamie just mentioned there, there is an apocryphal book. It's called the Testament of Solomon. It's not considered canon, but there is a reference to Lilith within it. And it continues the idea that Lilith is some kind of demonic force. The book was written between 200 and 600 AD. Lilith is portrayed as a demon who strangles children during childbirth. Solomon gets a hold of her and strips her of her power by binding her hair He then hangs her before all the people. Supposedly, Lilith mated with other fallen angels and kind of gave birth to her own sort of children from those encounters. And so we do see some of her children intermixing in different ways. Usually they're endowed with some sort of power or knowledge. Interesting. You mentioned that Lilith is in some mythology or legends out there considered to be a vampire. When did that start happening? Well, that was more around the time with uh, association with the Greek mythology. She still kept the same kind of role that she had in the ancient Mesopotamian literature, stealing infant wives. The Greeks specifically put the spin on it that she would drain these infants of blood. And that's how she would kill them. And so you kind of get this uh, succubus imagery coming from there. And so that, I think, is where some of the association with the idea of the vampire comes into play. Is there something out there that talks about uh, ways to ward Lilith off? Like if you feel like she would be coming at you when we talk about vampires, there's different things that you can do that would ward them off. Is there something that people can do if they don't want Lilith to come near them or especially a mom may not want Lilith to come near her newborn baby for just that reason. Yes, actually, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so the collection of ancient writings that were found among, I think, 11 or 12 different caves, they date anywhere from about 408 BCE to 318 CE, so quite a long span of time um, that we find some of these scrolls. They actually mention Lilith by name in one of the fragments that talks about how to avoid curses from fallen angels, from demons, and they mention Lilith specifically. And they have these sort of, I don't want to say chants, but they are sort of things that can be written down, things that mothers can pray over their their infants for protection. I guess part of the the power that those verses hold are that they name Lilith by name, and that supposedly had some sort of power over her to kind of keep her away 
from from the children as they slept. Yes. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran, the Qumran sect was fascinated by demonology, and thus Lilith appears in the Song for Sage, which was thought to be a hymn used during exorcisms. Here is that passage. And I, the sage, sound the majesty of his beauty to terrify and confound all the spirits of destroying angels and the bastard spirits, the demons, Lilith and those that strike suddenly to lead astray the spirit of understanding and to make desolate their heart. Numerous examples of talismans and amulets exist that were intended to protect babies from Lilith. Frequently, amulets were placed in the four corners and throughout the bedchamber. If a child laughed while sleeping, it was taken as a sign that Lilith was present. Tapping the child on the nose, it was believed, made her go away. Can you imagine that? You tap your child on the nose and and we all know the nose does not like to be tapped on or pushed hard or anything like that. So can you imagine? Oh, my child's laughing. Lilith must be around. Tap that baby on the nose. And like tapping a baby on the nose could exercise a demon if that's what you thought it was. That's kind of silly. It was well into the Middle Ages that Jews still manufactured amulets to keep away the lilium. Supposedly, they were lusty she-demons who copulated with men in all their dreams, causing nocturnal emissions. Incantation bowls featured Aramaic spells inscribed on them to provide protection from Lilith. One of these bowls is now on display at Harvard University's Semitic Museum and reads, Thou Lilith, hag and snatcher, I adjure you, by the strong one of Abraham, by the rock of Isaac, by the Shaddai of Jacob, to turn away from this Roshnoi, and from Geonai, her husband. Your divorce and written letter of separation sent through holy angels, Amen, Amen, Shelah, Alleluia. The inscription is meant to offer a woman named Reshnoi protection from Lilith. The Greeks adopted the belief of the Lilium, calling them Lemei, or daughters of Hecate. Likewise, the Christians adopted the belief calling them harlots of hell or succubi, the counterpart of the incubi. At one time, monks protected themselves from these Lilith-like creatures, Denise, get this, by sleeping with their hands over their genitals and clutching a crucifix. All righty then. That's, uh, never mind, no comment. (laughs) You've got your Jewish folklore and then you have Kabbalah and they're both from a Jewish base, obviously, but... Is there like a difference between how the Jews kind of look at Lilith as opposed to how somebody who practices Kabbalah would be looking at Lilith? It's interesting that you bring that up because in the Zohar, one of the Jewish texts associated with Kabbalah, it has Lilith in a much sort of different light. So she's still considered Adam's first wife. It goes into a little bit of her life that she lived with Adam, but as she's expelled, she takes on slightly different attributes than perhaps the what some of the other Hebrew texts will depict her. And so she's seen as kind of this night-dwelling creature. She's seen as much more of a temptress of men, and she's known for sort of bringing disease. And so one of the things that is associated with her is it goes on and on about her long hair, and that that was something that she used as, as a way to entrap men. And I found it really interesting that they talk so much about her hair becoming something, it's almost like it it had special power, which I thought was a little bit weird and interesting. But yeah, it we actually see that a little bit again. If you look in the literature from Johann Wolfgang von Goff, his the Faust, you see kind of this this idea of her hair coming up again, which I always found was interesting. Uh, Mephistopheles actually says uh, a quote 
Adam's wife his first, beware of her. Her beauty's one boast is her dangerous hair. When Lilith winds it tight around young men, she doesn't soon let go of them again. How interesting. I thought that that was a really weird and interesting thing, too, is this idea of hair. I mean, it's almost like a Rapunzel-type power, if you will. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they used to do in the early church, too, is tell women that they needed to cover their head a lot. I wonder if there's a connection there with covering up the hair. You know, there might be. There might be, because covering hair um, was always seen as something that sort of was chaste and that, you know, that was something that was, you know, to have your hair uncovered was to be considered, you know, a loose woman. So maybe there is an association there with uh, how they viewed Lilith in her sexuality and her hair. So, yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought about that, but it does does make sense. Well, the interesting thing you have here is you've got on one side, she's this child-murdering, vampiric, succubus, demonic thing. And then on the other side, she's this fertile mother who is just a, a powerful woman who was standing up for herself. It's very interesting to see the two different sides that you have going on here. And you can kind of see how through history those would be pushed forward. You know, as she began, she was kind of this spooky figure that preyed on children and pregnant women, and she was kind of used to explain some of that infant mortality. And so there were some very negative associations there. But then on the flip side, we have her as this independent woman. And so I think in a way through history, she's always kind of occupying that sort of negative space, that, that boogeyman figure that people feared because she was a threat to the patriarchal society. Whether she existed or not, I mean, I think there's a lot of in in mythology that she's become part of this reality. But even in the Hebrew sort of legends that they tell about her, she's, you know, she only goes after infants and pregnant women after God has punished her by killing her children. So it's kind of almost in a way sort of retaliation for things that that have happened. Lila started making appearances later in art. For example, Michelangelo portrayed her as a half-woman, half-serpent being. He placed her at the Tree of Knowledge. Dante Gabriel Rossetti portrayed her as the most beautiful female being in the world. The White Witch in the Chronicles of Narnia was inspired by the legend of Lilith. The White Witch is the daughter of Lilith, and thus she is focused on killing the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I didn't recall that being in the story that Lilith was her mother. I don't recall that being in the story, but I do remember that that was the whole White Witch's purpose was to kill that. And so it's funny how it fits right into the legend of Lilith. In our modern era, Lilith has enjoyed a resurgence and has become a symbol of feminine power and is worshipped in some circles of pagan spirituality, particularly Wicca. Astrology interprets Lilith as signifying one's hidden nature, so most likely their dark side. It is said that she is in the unconscious, where psychic demons breed in the darkness of ignorance. When Lilith appears in the natal chart, it is to be used to bring to the conscious mind any self-defeating patterns of behavior. Well, Jamie, I want to thank you for being willing to come on and share what you know about Lilith, because like I said, uh, we didn't know much about her. And so thank you for filling in a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for having me on. I loved to be able to share a little bit about her. All right. You have a happy Halloween. Oh, you too. All right. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Did Lilith ever actually exist? Could she have formed as some kind of tulpa because of the stories and beliefs about her that have carried through for centuries? 
What are your thoughts about Lilith? Is she some kind of demonic vampire hellbent on killing babies? Or is she a symbol of female power that scared patriarchal societies? Could she be both? That is for you to decide. Very interesting figure there indeed. Yes, she is. You could take your thoughts any way. You know, she could be super scary or just like a misinterpreted symbol. And like I've said, when it comes to this fringe Christianity, one of the reasons why I started looking at a lot of the things that are over there is because you get these little questions that crop up like this. Like, was there really a a Lilith? And was there a first wife for Adam? And why do you have two totally different sounding origins for mankind in Genesis? Just... Things that make you go, hmm, as they like to say. Yes, they do. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we did get a message from Scott. You two are awesome. Love you both and your fantastic podcast. I found your podcast about a month ago and love it, how you run the format and all. Anyway, keep up the good work. It really makes the night shift go faster. And then we also heard from Sina through a message. I am a resident of Tuella, Utah. Thought you should know that Asylum 49 has wimpy Wednesdays where they don't touch the guest. My daughter was on the staff for two years. We were both born in that hospital. And so Diane responded back and asked about any experiences her daughter might have had. And she said, I don't know about hers. I do know about mine. My kids were born in 1996 and 1997. Both times I was in the maternity ward, there was this nurse who called herself Maria. The first time I saw her, she offered me a blanket, got it for me, and then left the room. I asked about her later, and the attending nurse gave me this not-again look as she explained that lots of people asked for her, and she hasn't been there since the early 80s. The second encounter, my son was not breathing properly, and they had to life-flight him to the university NICU. She sat next to me and held my hand while my husband was talking with the medical staff. And Cena shared with us that on the website for Asylum 49, there is a photograph of this ghost, Maria. A local joke you didn't include about that area of town, it is called the Dead Center because the cemetery, retirement home, and hospital are all lumped together. (laughs) That's horrible. (laughs) I love it, the Dead Center. When we read that part, I was like, oh, step into the dead center of the room. Our favorite attraction. Exactly. Well, we did hear from her daughter, and her name is Tashiana. She said, when I worked there, I was placed in the former x-ray lab, and there's the ghost of one of the former x-ray techs in there. His name is Dr. Hansen. He's overall a pretty friendly spirit. He tried to keep the mean ones away from everyone. I actually managed to get a picture of him once. There's also the basement of the building. The entrance reeks of unwelcome. One day I noticed the light was on, so out of curiosity, I decided to go down and check it out. Don't ever go down the stairs to check it out. No, especially if it's kind of creepy. As I got closer to the door, I got the sense that I wasn't wanted there. I turned and ran up the stairs. The two people with me at the time said they heard a howling noise when I got down there. Yikes. Denise, what I thought was really cool about this message that she sent us is that she verified the x-ray tech being there in the x-ray lab. Oh, wow. So she actually experienced him. So it wasn't just something that we read out of a book. No, it was one of our listeners' daughters had that real life. And then we got an email from Suzanne. Got something hilarious for you. In group therapy, we had to describe our favorite place. Someplace calm to think about when we face a difficult time. 
So I picked the cemetery in Lincoln, Nebraska, where my ancestors are buried. I told the group how beautiful it is. The beautiful trees, brick path, the stables, beautiful sculptures, the sound of the flags waving, smell of flowers and cut grass, how it inspires me to write and do genealogy and so forth. It's a wonderful place for me. Just happens to have dead people. Apparently, the notes in my file said my safe place is a cemetery without much description. Because when I met with a hospital psychiatrist, and you know where I'm going with this, the first thing he asked me was, are you a morbid person? I laughed out loud. Then I told him I do genealogy and describe the cemetery more. He laughed too. So the moral of the story is we enjoy what we enjoy in your podcast and walking through cemeteries can help reduce the symptoms of depression. Well, thanks for sharing that, Suzanne. You can imagine she goes in and they're having group therapy and she's like, I like to hang out with dead people. Hey, that seems normal to me. I don't blame her. There's a lot of people on this planet I don't like, so I think I would rather hang out with dead people sometimes. We got some reviews over at Apple Podcasts. The first one is from Anton Lestat-Lewis, and that has a couple of names that make me think of Anne Rice, Interview with the Vampire. Great show, five stars. I like the concept, history and ghosts. Hosts are great. They really research their topics. Well, thank you for that. Alicia Perry, five stars. I am new to the world of podcasting, and HGB has been the first podcast I've ever listened to. I don't know if we should apologize or... Nah. I stumbled across the podcast when searching for history podcasts. When I saw it was a mix of history and the paranormal, two things I've always loved, I knew I had to check it out. As people have mentioned before, the production quality of the first few episodes was a little rough, but the content was still amazing and the quality improved after those first few episodes. I have enjoyed binging on episodes the last few months and hearing how the show has grown. Diane and Denise are two wonderful ladies and their personalities and chemistry make listening to the show even more enjoyable. I also love how interactive they are with their listeners. Feels like everyone is part of a family. Although I have a feeling I would still be a little starstruck if I got to meet them. Ha ha. That being said, I live in Northern Illinois and hope to catch you guys at the Alton Conference next year. Keep up the good work. Well, we'd love to have you join us, Alicia. We have a great time there. And this one is from Fairy Lint. See what he did there? Fairy Lint instead of Larry Flint. Oh, I got it. Okay. (laughs) Always fantastic. Five stars. So much fun. Love it. Well, thank you, Fairy. We appreciate that. And finally, Geeky Lori. Spooky, entertaining, and educational five stars. I love this podcast. The places and stories that Diana and Denise talk about are great, and the banter between the ladies is awesome. Every episode adds to my repertoire of useless knowledge. I've been binge listening at work for a few weeks, and I'm all caught up. I'm excited to hear what's next. Yes, we are definitely fountains of useless knowledge. I love to share that with people all the time. Yeah, and I'm glad that we are inspiring others to expand that library in their mind. Exactly. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Amber Vanderwolf, Anna Frias, Laura and Craig from Spectral Asylum Podcast, and Cassia Boaz. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.
Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.